Today's New Testament reading comes from Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 51. We'll read to the end of the chapter. Luke says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans, to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as far as you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. I'm hoping that I don't have to yell anymore. I, I put batteries in this mic this morning, and I knew, I, I found them on the counter back there, so I knew it was a risk, and I took the risk, and I shouldn't have taken the risk. So, these are fresh batteries, we should be good. Welcome, we're, we're happy to have you if you're visiting with us, my name is Matt. Um, we're continuing a conversation we started last week, um, but hopefully, even if you weren't with us, uh, it, it will flow seamlessly. But last summer, so August of 2021, the Killers released a concept album entitled Pressure Machine. Did anybody listen to it? Pressure Machine? Okay, so um, it's, it's actually quite good. But there, there's a, a track on the album entitled Quiet Town. Um, and it explores, the, the song explores the twin realities of sort of rural poverty in America and uh, the devastation that opioids have proliferated in recent decades, uh, specifically in rural America. But reflecting, in the song, reflecting on a specific um, unexpected tragedy in this small town, the chorus of the song begins like this. Things like that, so that unexpected tragedy, things like that ain't supposed to happen in this quiet town where families are tight, good people, they still don't deadbolt their doors at night in this quiet town. Things like that aren't supposed to happen. A sentiment I'm sure we have all felt a time or two that's not supposed to happen, at least not in this quiet town, at least not to good people. 
Last week, we read the portion of Luke 9 that immediately precedes what Steve just read for us, where Jesus calls his disciples into a life of self-denial. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And I think an underlying principle inherent in that invitation is the admission that we are actually in control of very little in terms of what happens to us. So this is one of the things we talked about last week, and I think it's a really important place to begin this conversation on evil and, and suffering and even death. But that admission raises a host of other questions. For instance, if I am not in control, or if I am in control of very little of what happens to me, who is in control? Is it God? And if God is genuinely in control, does that also make him responsible for the suffering we face due to evil? These are really complex questions, admittedly, that require nuanced responses, again, because we are hoping over the course of our lives to begin to think deeply about suffering and evil in a way that is thoroughly Christian. And we hope to think in a Christian manner about these issues so that we might respond well when we suffer and so that we might respond well to the suffering of others. Now, historically, one way Christians have made sense of such questions is in thinking deeply about God's sovereignty. The fact that God is sovereign over all of creation. And I actually think it's an important part of this conversation But I also think there are healthy ways to think about that in relation to the conversation and maybe ways that are less helpful, like the view of God's sovereignty that essentially reduces him to some sort of a cosmic puppet master, controlling all details, guiding all contingencies because those occurrences are exactly what he wants or needs in order to fulfill his purposes. That anything that happens is because God not only willed it, but because God also wants it, which is an important distinction, perhaps. So we find principles like this throughout our scriptures. So this is some of the tension that as followers of Jesus, we have to be willing to wrestle with. We we even see a general principle in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16, verse 33, where we read, the lot is cast into the lap, but the decision is wholly from the Lord. So the idea that there's nothing random that is occurring, even the lot that is cast, the Lord is guiding that decision. This principle, though, can be even applied much more broadly in a way that completely undermines human free will altogether. You are not making that decision, or somebody is not making an evil decision. That is God who is willing it and wants it, and he can do what he wants. And who are we to question that? Now, from the beginning, let me just assure you, I I do believe that God is sovereign over all of creation. Or as Paul says in Colossians 1, it was a part of the song we sang together this morning, that all things were created by Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He has ascended and is 
I believe, as an objective reality ruling over creation even now. I also believe what we read in Isaiah 55, that his ways and thoughts are higher than ours. I believe that whatever happens in this life, God is going to, in the end, accomplish his purposes that he can and I believe will bring good even out of atrocious evils, but surely he doesn't depend upon that evil in order to accomplish his purposes. So I think, and I'm not trying to be pejorative with the use of this phrase, but that is sort of the puppet master view of God's Sovereignty, which, if taken to the extreme, sort of makes him responsible or the author of evil and death. I personally do not believe that God delights in or needs evil in order to accomplish his purposes. So in this way, I don't believe that God's sovereignty is an escape hatch for, for us to avoid wrestling with difficult ideas which might lead us to passive indifference. But passive indifference isn't really the model of spirituality we find in our Bible. Yahweh's people are, have always been a people who wrestle with God, so to speak. We might think of Jacob, who apparently wrestles to the point of having a physical injury, physical limp. Or we might think of Moses, who pleads with God in Numbers 14, when Israel's faith falters, if you remember that story, just before they are prepared to enter the promised land, Israel's faith falters and God is angry and ready to scrap the whole plan along with the people, and Moses pleads with God. We looked at this text last year, you may remember that. But when Moses pleads with God, this is what he says. He says, remember who you are. This is who you told us you will always be. Verse 17, we'll read it real quick. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving us, uh, forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So he acknowledges here. You do not leave the guilty unpunished. And then he continues, but will you leave them unpunished? Will you forgive them anyway? Verse 19, in accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. So these are some of the tensions that even these characters from centuries ago, we're wrestling with. Though you extend punishment to the third and fourth generations, will you forgive them anyway? Or maybe we would think of the book of Psalms, which is packed with sort of those brutally honest conversations, these souls that are laid bare before God, hearts that are saturated with fear and anger, uncertainty and sorrow, and it is all voiced before God. So I, I don't think the model we have is one of resignation and indifference. Well, this is just what happens. Evil must be good because God is willing it to happen. 
His ways are far beyond ours. We can't comprehend them. So when we see evil, something that is objectively evil, when we see heart-wrenching death or the abuse of children, our response, because of God's sovereignty, has to be, well, everything that happens, even evil, is because God wants it. That's one approach. Or we might reach the conclusion, well, the bad stuff that happens when evil occurs, this must be God's judgment. Now, we find some of this voiced in our scriptures as well, the idea that he sends the flood, the storm, fires, illnesses in order to punish sin. But we, we cannot interpret that as an absolute principle. Even Jesus addresses this perspective, if you recall, in John chapter 9 in regard to the man who was born blind. And the disciples ask, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that led to this physical condition? And Jesus says, this is not because of sin, whether this man's or the parents. We find these principles in Proverbs as well. Live wisely and you'll have a long life. Live wisely and you won't suffer calamity because good things happen to good people. Probably the most popular place we find this perspective is in the book of Job. Some have argued that the book of Job itself, we, we find this principle of retribution, that we reap what we sow. If we are experiencing evil or bad things, it is because of sin in some sense. It's either, well, God is far above and in control, so we don't question it, or God is judging you for something you did. These are the responses of Job's friends who, who try to explain away the pain and the suffering Job is experiencing. Either God is far above, so don't worry about it, don't wrestle with this, or you or your children have done something to deserve this calamity that you are experiencing. But remember, Job chapter 1, verse 1, the first verse of this book, we are introduced to this man named Job, and we read this, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So he had health and wealth and a full house, and yet at the prompting of the Satan, unending tragedy visits him. If you remember that story, he loses quite literally everything, despite the fact that we are told he was blameless. So this principle is once again the tension that we have to wrestle with, and it's brought up here in the book of Job. Do we get what we deserve, whether good or bad? And if we receive bad, then we have to understand that as God's judgment in some sense. And to be sure, again, I want to emphasize that as followers of Jesus, we believe that God will judge. Romans chapter 2 makes this clear, that God pours out his wrath, Paul says. And perhaps that wrath can largely be understood as the experience of the consequences of our sin. Without repentance and submission to the will and rule of God, we, Paul says, are willingly inviting that wrath. 
Now, what that judgment entails is another conversation, but we believe that there will be judgment. In fact, we affirm as much in the Apostles' Creed, which are children are learning now. In the middle of the creed, we confess our belief that Jesus Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. And yet the New Testament understanding of judgment is not reduced to just everything bad that happens in this life, whether it's natural evil or moral evil, that is the judgment of God. The the New Testament picture of judgment is much more nuanced than that. In fact, I think to some degree we find this demonstrated in the life of Jesus as the God revealed in Jesus calms the tumultuous storm that threatened to destroy sinful disciples. Instead of sending famine, Jesus feeds thousands of people. Instead of causing disease because of unrepentant sin, we find Jesus repeatedly, city after city, healing the diseases of the people. Now, to be sure, sometimes the calamity we experience in this life is a consequence of our sin. And we might understand that as wrath. And it might be extraordinarily painful. On the other hand, some pain we endure might actually be God's discipline. We do believe God disciplines those he loves. And so maybe what we are experiencing and interpreting as wrath and anger, maybe that is actually not retribution, but discipline that is leading to our good. Believe God is restoring what is broken, bringing life to our death. So that is all one one approach that is again, most popularly demonstrated in the book of Job. God is sovereign behind every occurrence in our world, even evil. So we shouldn't question it. In fact, we might want to rejoice when we see evil because God must want it. But again, settling for easy answers to really difficult tensions is not required for us to be people of faith. Now, so we're switching gears a bit. The, and, not the, but an alternative to that approach, and it's one that is quite common, is not God is sovereign and controlling all of these contingencies, but is to resign ourselves to cynicism and disbelief, which in my view is equally destructive. And in my view, it's an easy way out of these difficult tensions in its own right. So it's the perspective, well, in the face of this experiential conundrum that I am facing, the only reasonable explanation is that God does not exist. He cannot exist if I am enduring all of these terrible things. And if that's the conclusion we reach, the problem vanishes. Francis Buford put it this way. He said, in the absence of God, of course, there's still pain but there's no problem. It's just what happens. In my view, that is an equally unsatisfying conclusion. Tish Harrison Warren, in her little book called Prayer in the Night, took that a step further and said, without the existence of God, yes, the problem of pain vanishes, but in its place, the problem of goodness emerges. 
Because if we have no overarching meaning and purpose any longer, goodness and beauty and truth are but a mirage. How do we account for goodness? How do we even understand goodness in any way that is meaningful or intelligible other than just a ho-hum, well, relatively happy about this, it must be good. Or at worst, I feel neutral about this, so it must be good. I think that's unsatisfying. In my view, Christian hope is the only adequate response, both philosophically and experientially. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this, that there is not a single, I think I forgot to make a slide for this, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. There's not a single aspect of the Christian message that is not in part an answer to the question of evil. Or as Warren, in that book, uh, uh, Prayer in the Night, she put it this way. If there is anything remotely approaching a Christian answer to our questions about theodicy, the story is the answer. Story is the answer. Perhaps we even find a subtle reminder of this in that gospel text from Luke chapter 9, actually the portion that we read together last week. So if you remember, Peter and Jesus are interacting. Jesus extends that invitation into a life of self-denial with that recognition that we are not in control. But all of that, the invitation into self-denial, picking up our cross and following Jesus, it is all framed in the broader context of the story. The fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, he is the Christ who is summing up and fulfilling all of Israel's history to bring God's salvation. And that path to victory and salvation for the people of Israel involves God's own death. And so only in light of the incarnate, crucified, and resurrected God Jesus Christ, who is now reigning as Lord over all of creation, only in light of that story can we begin to understand our own pain, our own struggle with the existence of evil in a way that is thoroughly Christian. So the New Testament vision of evil and death, though it is complex, I think it's appropriate to say that the New Testament vision of evil and death is to view it as the scandal that it is. That it is an absurdity. It's a moral outrage. It's not the way things are supposed to be. It's not God's plan. He is not dependent on evil to accomplish his plan. No, his plan is to rescue us from sin, evil, and death and to restore creation to its originally intended purposes. And so when we see evil at a distance, or when we feel it up close, and the only sense that we have is this is not right. I don't know what else to say, but this cannot be right. That is an utterly Christian impulse. Tim Keller put it this way. He said, a sense of his absence is an evidence that he has touched you. We experience what feels like the absence of God, which is voiced again throughout our scriptures. 
when we feel that, what seems like the absence of God, and all we can muster is the thought, this cannot be right. That is an utterly Christian impulse. David Bentley Hart, the Eastern Orthodox theologian, has a great little book on this topic called The Doors of the Sea. If you're interested in some of these conversations, I, I recommend this book. Um, in it, one of the arguments that he makes is that the Christian view of the world isn't optimistic. At least it's not optimistic in this way, that God is sovereign, and so whatever happens must be good because God is willing it and wants it. God is orchestrating even evil in order to bring glory to himself. He argues Christian hope is, or Christian faith is not optimistic in that way, but it is, he says, triumphalistic. Though this may be very bad, God will triumph. Paul says there are powers and principalities in our world. That is the enemy of God, not us. So when evil abounds, when innocents suffer, and all we have is a sense this cannot be right. As Paul says in Romans 8, death and evil will not overcome or separate us from the love of God. We cling to that hope that God overcomes death and evil, and we await the day that that will be fully realized. So Christian faith requires not optimism that everything is good and that evil is necessary for God to fulfill his purposes, but Christian faith does require hope. This may not be good. This may not be at all what God intended, but one day we believe it will be. Death, destruction, evil, and chaos are not God's plan. God's plan is to rescue us from sin and death, to restore and to make all things new once again. I want to read a lengthy section from that little book, Doors of the Sea. I hate to read a section that, this, that is this long, but I don't hate it enough not to do it. So just stick with me. Um, I read this book for the first time, I think, in 2007. I've read it several times since, but this particular passage I have returned to dozens of times. I can't count them at this point. Um, so hopefully I can make it through it. We'll see. He said this, Until that final glory, however, the world remains divided between two kingdoms where light and darkness Life and death grow up together and await the harvest. In such a world, our portion is charity and our sustenance is faith. And so it will be until the end of days. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater. Give me a moment. I, I thought after dozens of times reading this that I could make it through uh, without embarrassing myself, but I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but the face of his enemy. It is a faith 
that has set us free from optimism long ago and taught us hope instead. Now we are able to rejoice that we are not saved through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace. That God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great synthesis, but will judge much of history false and damnable. That he will not simply reveal the sublime logic of fallen nature, but will strike off the fetters in which creation language languishes. And that rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of the kingdom, he will instead raise her up. Wipe all tears from her eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain. For the former things will have passed away. And he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Thanks be to God. This is our hope. Would you stand? Death and sin are the enemies of God. And we believe that death and sin are overcome in Jesus of Nazareth. And it's that hope we cling to in the midst of chaos, death, and evil. We're going to celebrate that reality. The victory that we believe Jesus has achieved in his death, resurrection, and ascension and the victory that we believe we will one day experience in its fullness, we celebrate that by gathering around the table of our Lord, feasting on him through the bread and the cup. We invite you to the table of our Lord with us today. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, you will hear the words spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. You can take the elements on your own and return to your seat. I want to say a prayer for us by way of invitation, and then we'll gather to declare and celebrate the victory we have in Jesus Christ. Oh God, your never-failing providence sets in order all things, both in heaven and on earth. Put away from us all hurtful things. And give us those things that are profitable for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?